This podcast was originally recorded for DevChat TV. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Sustain Our Software, the podcast where we talk about sustaining our software, which is why it was named that way. I am Richard Litauer, and today we also have Eric Berry. Hey, y'all. Those are the two people who normally run the podcast, and we'll be talking about stuff today with Benjamin Nichols. Hello. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on, so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from the Food Fight Show, and we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. Is it Ben Jam? Ben, which one do you prefer? Ah, so there's this thing, right, that happens that whenever you sign up on a web platform or something, there's there's someone that's already called Ben on it. So generally what I do is just take the next three letters and that's why I'm known as Ben Jam everywhere. It's rather strange. Like face-to-face, people call me Ben. Whenever I write my name down, I write Benjamin. On the internet, I'm Ben Jam. Pick one. It doesn't matter. All right. I'm going to start using Air Bear. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty awesome. I had a friend who rented out Airbnb, so she called herself an Air Lord. Air Bear sounds like a nicer version of that. Not a close friend. Anyway, so Ben Jam, you're, you're famous for working on Octobox, which is a GitHub notification uh, app, right? Yeah, I would say famous is a stretch. Uh, for me, I mean, I think it's pretty cool. <laughs> so yeah, I do. I work on Octobox with Andrew Nesbitt, otherwise known as TBAS, on the interwebs, apart from on GitHub, where he's known as Andrew, which I think he regrets the decision because he gets a lot of spam. Which is part of the problem. Uh, so we go right the way back around to the start of the conversation, which is what is Octobox? It helps people like Andrew who get far too many notifications because they chose the username Andrew on GitHub handle all of those notifications in a kind of post-event filtering mechanism. So yeah, Octobox has existed for about three years, I think. And just over a year ago, Andrew and I uh, left our jobs and started working on Octobox full-time which we did for around, I think it was probably about nine months, 10 months to get it to where it is today. And now we're kind of doing other things with our time, but Octobox is a sustainable open source project that's paying its own way in the world. What's the model behind the payment? Is it a, is it a free slash paid solution? Is it a, uh, how, how do you make money on that? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, like there's, there's maybe a question before that, which is why make money for it, right? So... For us, I mean, I can go into that question or I can just jump into your question. This is your podcast, buddy. <laughs> okay, so why, why charge people for, uh, uh, to access an open source um, application? It's because the Octobox is two things. So it's like 
a way to help manage your notifications. But for Andrew and I, it's also a way for us to learn about creating a sustainable open source project and to be able to share those lessons in public with everyone to be able to be kind of like an example of how to run a sustainable open source project. So we started working on Octobox back in, I think it was July, 2017 or was it July, 2018? I can't remember. I think it was 17. And I think in December, oh no, it was 18. So I think it was December, 2018. We started charging people to, to access private notifications. So that's, notifications from repositories that are private on GitHub. So the point of that is basically we have always wanted to be free for open source, but we want Octobox to pay its own way, to pay for its own hosting, to pay for software development and to become a more sustainable project. And the assumption that we have is that if you have a private repository, then that has some value to you. So you can pay for notifications for it. And we have plans for individuals and we have plans for organizations so you can pay on a monthly basis to gain access to all of your own personal private notifications, or you can pay as an organization for everyone within your organization to gain access to private notifications. So you mentioned it's a sustainable open source business in the sense that it sustains the work that's on it itself. And yet you and Andrew no longer work on it full time. So wouldn't a sustainable project involve actually paying you to work on it full time or... Where's the line between a sustainable project for itself and a sustainable project for you, the main maintainer? So I think that's like the interesting thing to explore. So this is all an experiment. Uh, and the question is basically, is it, is it sustainable if you're not working on it a full time? My argument would be that it is, unless it's some, in some way deficient. So we worked on Octobox and got it to a point where it was useful and provided enough value for people uh, so that they would pay for it. And we did that in such a way that we basically abstracted ourselves away uh, in terms of our time from the way in which the project kind of sustains itself financially. So I think we're in quite a unique position with regards to being able to kind of step in and step out of a project. So we are kind of on the other side of people who their time, like the specific, like the, the, the donations that they have are for themselves working on a certain project and they feel like they have the responsibility to work on a project 24-7. Whereas we have a project that will keep running without our having to spend all of our time working on it. So an odd question, pretend I'm an anarcho-syndicalist. Why are you working somewhere else now? Why not get it to a point where you can make enough money to not have to work unless you really need to bug fix once a month? So we would love to get it there, uh, basically. So we, we went through the experience of trying to get users to convert from free for, because we have the principle of you know free for open source uh, to paid. And we saw people paying for the service, but not so much that we had like like that hockey kind of uh, hockey stick trajectory where we could pay for all of our time immediately. We tried some advertising and that didn't work to convert more users to paid. And yet we saw like a nice little kind of uptick in organic growth on a monthly basis. So we both made the decision that we should step away from working on the project full time and see where that organic organic growth takes us in time. So right now we're in a bit of a strange place where Octobox is sustainable it can pay for all its own hosting and it has enough money. And um, just last month, we re-donated all of the money that 
had been given to us by the community to run Octobox and Octobox IO back to the community. So we redonated, I think it was just under $4,000 worth of donations that we'd received right up until that point on Open Collective. And now we can start experimenting with paying for development from that fund and the fund that comes in through paid users. So at the moment, Octobox, I think, makes around $2,000 a month, which is enough to pay for like a few days worth of development per month, but it's not enough to pay full time. So yeah, we would, we would like it to be in a position where it was more financially successful so that we could have more time to develop on it. But then it's in like a nice place where it is right now anyway. So kind of happy with it as it is. Fascinating. Uh, Octobuck wasn't the first project you and Andrew worked on together. No. So we had a previous one, libraries.io? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, Andrew and I have been working together for years and years and years. Back in, I think it was 2015, I got pulled from working at the time of My Society, which is like a civic tech company that builds open source software to help people engage with the kind of democratic process and to be able to hold people kind of accountable within that process as well. And I was running the kind of commercial subsidiary of that that would build and maintain kind of custom solutions for clients based on those open source applications. So I've been kind of doing uh, open source business for a long, long time. And I got pulled into the core internet infrastructure initiative by a couple of friends because I had a background in like software security and uh, kind of product development. And this was just after the kind of Heartbleed incident. And one of the main questions that was being asked uh, post-Heartbleed was, well, what other open source projects do we need to, to look at? And then I met Andrew at an event, uh, I think it was a month later in November 2015, I think it was. He was talking about libraries, which was a service that he just built off the back of having a uh, tried to improve GitHub Explore. And libraries are just like an open source software uh, search engine where the search ranking was predominantly weighted on the dependency graph for all of open source. So rather than searching by you know, like GitHub stars or anything like that, it would be based on, on usage predominantly, which turns out to be a pretty good metric because you know the community is reasonably wise when it comes to picking open source software. The other way of looking at that is that it enables through that dependency graph you to look at which of the projects that have the least amount of attention, but the most usage. Started talking to him about working together and then working with the Ford Foundation and the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Um, managed to get some funding together for us to work on that full-time throughout 2016, 17, which we did. So we did that. And we also tried to build a kind of sustainability engine within that first year in a product called Dependency CI, which is not unlike Greenkeeper or Dependabot, which is now acquired by GitHub, in that it kind of helps you stay on top of your dependencies. So the idea is kind of how can we make the strain that maintainers feel less? Um, and a lot of that strain is because people are not on like the current version, right? So that was kind of part of this all over strategy of how to help maintainers and to help kind of create a more sustainable ecosystem for open source software. When you came out with this data, I remember I remember referring to um, libraries I O quite a bit when it came to finding out the number of maintainers for projects that we use. What kind of an impact did did this effort have in exposing the the problems that we're facing in 
in open source uh, sustainability? So at the time, uh, there was very little data for researchers to actually be able to work on. And we had always had it as part of our goals for the project with the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation to release the data that we had about software dependencies and interdependencies so that others could build on top of that. You know, the the foundation is predominantly about being able to forward academic research uh, in science and academia. We just thought it was a good thing to do, effectively. Um, What impact did it have? It's very difficult to track these things. We know universities that have put out research papers that use it as a their core kind of data set, and they're looking at things like the health of different open source ecosystems. Um, they're looking at the interconnectedness of open source software. They're looking at things like citation economy for universities and the fact that open source software is used in uh, university research, but it's not often cited, and where it is cited, it's cited really poorly. Um, and when it is cited, you can't see kind of how that software is then used in other papers. Yeah, and all those kinds of things. But generally, we just thought it was a good thing to do. So back in 2017, I, I met you for the first time at Sustain uh, Summit out in London. Before that, the year before, you, along with about 100 other people, met in San Francisco and had the uh, uh, the, the first Sustain Summit where you came out with a report, and I believe that you were the one that took all the data and collected the, you know, and built the report out of that. You're a fantastic writer. So can you tell us a little bit about that report, a TLDR, you know, per se, on what people can learn from that report? Yeah, sure. So, like, thank you. Uh, I'm I'm glad you think it was well written. But it was, yeah, the combination of a 100 people's opinions and discussions, plus a few things from the the general kind of community that are on the internet views that weren't able to be kind of represented in the room. And and I would say from experience that is not something you want to undertake lightly, uh, because it's not it's not easy to to feel like you're kind of honoring everyone's views. But I am quite proud of that report. The report basically just provides a number of recommendations for a number of like actors within the open source kind of sustainability space. So people who are maintainers people who are contributors, people who are sponsors, people who want to kind of support open source software, and then people who are basically like consumers of open source software. And it lists a number, I think it was like nine recommendations for people who are within those kind of gamuts. I think it's generally like a non-questionable kind of set of recommendations around things like you should consider the fact that you're contributing to an open source repo to be a weight on the maintainers necessarily rather than like a celebration of your contribution and that equally uh, maintainers should build processes so that they enable kind of a broader kind of more diverse uh, set of contributors to come on and kind of build them funnels such that they can kind of share the workload. But ultimately I think like the biggest like tilde to come out of that report is that Sustainable open source projects are ultimately diverse projects. So they have diverse source of people involved in them, diverse set of skills, diverse set of uh, supporters, and a diverse set of kind of just generally resources. And that we should be kind of building, be building diverse communities around open source projects. So you've, you've already mentioned the diversity of, of sources of funding. Um, for instance, you've talked about 
getting funding from the Sloan Foundation to do scientific research on dependencies. And you talked about Open Collective as being a source of income for Octobox. I'm curious if you could talk some more about other sources of funding that you've tried and whether you found that having multiple income streams for a single project has made it be more sustainable in the long term. I would say of the things that we've tried, they are effectively donations through Open Collective, paid uh, services um, that are ultimately backed by companies that we are the directors of, and then grants, uh, things that we haven't tried like personal sponsorships. We also haven't tried like selling stickers and t-shirts and all that kind of stuff. I would say that through my work with like my site, we've, I've always had the view that grants are always going to end at the end of the grant. So I don't, I've, I've never believed that you should count on grants at all. If you get one, very, very lucky, carry on. Um, but always think about what's coming next and try to make sure that that's not necessarily another grant, which is thankfully how like the institutions that we worked with also think a lot of grants, uh, kind of come with portion of like how are you going to sustain the work past what we're doing having a diverse range of revenues for octobox has made us more sustainable um so one of the experiments that we're doing on octobox is that you can basically i have to be quite careful the wording but let's not be careful pay uh (laughs) for the service in two ways so you can donate to octobox and if you donate the same amount that you would be paying via the github marketplace we will give you the same access to the service. So if you're paying $10 for your own account on Open Collective, you're donating $10, we'll give you access to Octobox for the month uh, on the same basis as you would for buying on the GitHub Marketplace. And that's worked out really well for us because we had a load of backers who were supporting the open source project before, and now they get like a further advantage. Like they get access to the paid for services that they would you know otherwise potentially not be getting and they get to see like the project be more successful as a result of that and then we have all the folks that are paying for the service on github through the github marketplace and one of the experiments that we've been trying to conduct is like do people prefer supporting the project and the community of the project through open collective or do they prefer supporting effectively like a commercial provider of software in Octobox Limited, which is uh, the company that Andrew and I run that runs Octobox.io. And we try very hard to kind of make sure that those methods of payments are on, like, put forward in front of people on an equal basis. But it kind of turns out at the moment that people are just happier to pay a commercial provider. So, so that was like an interesting experiment that we have done in public. That's not the first time we've actually heard about that on this podcast. In fact, one of our guests told us that it's easier for a company to pay a $2,000 invoice than it is for them to pay an individual $20. We definitely see that as well. Um, and it's, it's also even easier if that invoice is just a line item on an existing invoice that you're paying because you pay for GitHub. So the current, the current deal with the GitHub marketplace is that I think they keep 25% of that revenue, which seems steep. But we've had that conversation with so many people where we get thrown a procurement contract that we have to sign or we get thrown a security like analysis that we have to go through in order for developers within an organization to use Octobox. But because we're verified, we're on the GitHub marketplace, all of that just goes away, which has been absolutely amazing for us. So, so yeah, I would say definitely it is a lot easier being a part of the community in that sense of you know GitHub marketplace solutions as well as um, the community of sustainable open source software. 
why don't you charge twelve fifty on GitHub if it's a ten dollar thing if you're taking twenty five percent, right? So yeah, that's true. I didn't want to split my experiments results by changing the pricing in one solution versus the other. That's fair enough. It's like an A B test, right? Yeah. Like the, the whole thing was the whole of the whole of Octobox is an experiment in open source sustainability, right? Ask a research question, answer it, try and manage all of the different kind of variables in it. So you say you haven't sold swag, but I have an Octobox pin. Oh yeah, those are just given those were given away. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I didn't I didn't pay you for that, that's true. Which is no, 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 no. Yeah. So we did a limited run of like a hundred pins that went at the second sustain event. I was almost certain that somebody just nicked the whole bag because I left them out on the side. And I think within 30 minutes, they had all gone. So people who like stickers, I've got nothing against stickers, but pin badges are where it's at. Noted. I'd like to, to kind of move the conversation more towards what you're working on now with GitHub. One of the things I want to say, though, is that your report back in 2017 is what triggered the idea that, that a funding solution should exist. And, and through that, Code Sponsor was created. I've been really pushing hard for the last two years to get funding acceptable in the open source community. One of the things that I did back in 2017 was build Code Sponsor, which displayed ethical sponsorships, basically where uh, we just place a message saying that such and such company supports this project. Anytime a developer clicks on that link, the individual project would get paid a certain amount. There's been an ongoing kind of love-hate relationship with me and GitHub over the years, and it's now on the love side because uh, of the new you know, all of the new people behind it. Recently, they came out with GitHub sponsors. To me, that was a fantastic first step. I'd like to hear your input on that. And in my view, one there, there's massive problems behind GitHub sponsors that I see, but I'd like to hear the pros and cons that you see with that and the direction that you think they're going to go. Yeah, sure. So I'll say this as someone who's currently working at GitHub but doesn't work on sponsors. So I have like a internal but external view, if you know what I mean. But I thought the same as you. So when Sponsors was first launched, was it at Universe or was it at... No, it was at, at the Berlin thing, right? I thought they just had uh, one of their big marketing, a big marketing thing. I, I don't I think it was. I think it was at Satellite in Berlin, maybe. Anyway, so when GitHub Sponsors was first launched, I thought the same thing as you, which is it's a great first step. So it enables people to sponsor individuals through the platform and there was a great kicker in that, you know, GitHub backs up those sponsorships to the value of like, I think it's $5,000 per um, developer. And that's, that's all I really thought of at the time. Like, so if you're going to look at a segment of that market, you want it to be very, very simple for you to implement. And uh, individuals to individual sponsorships are the simplest kind of form of, of that. Like, literally, it's the first good, good step. It's also the step that like, Currently, is I, most people would, would do that kind of stuff on Patreon. And I'm pretty sure that Patreon don't really take notice of that particular segment of their market. So it's not kind of hurting anyone in that respect. But I do kind of have a bit of a concern. And also, I guess it's a bit of an advantage around kind of supporting individuals versus supporting communities and supporting groups and teams of people because of that diversity point that we, we mentioned earlier. So I'm kind of hoping that GitHub sponsors can grow to be supportive of teams of people 
um, because I see there being a bit of a risk of people burning out when they feel the weight of responsibility of people kind of donating to them, especially when it's regarding like a particular project. But I would say that very cleverly, the thing that GitHub have done currently is that you are just sponsoring an individual. So there is not any kind of weight on that person with regard to like what they should be working on. It's literally just you support that person and they can work on whatever they want. So that's great. But I still kind of worry about people placing upon themselves a burden of, oh, I've got all these people supporting me and I'm known for working on project X, Y, or Z. So I feel like I've got to spend all my time working on that project and I feel bound to it. And what if all of a sudden I kind of fall out of love with it or I want to take a break or I want to work on another project that I want to help on maybe almost in my dependency tree. You know, I see some value in the dependency tree here because I can solve problems for my project by solving project problems on that project. So yeah, that's like, that's my whole thought around it right now. It's a really good first step. It's quite clever in that it's not associated with work on any one project. So you've not got like, you know, for instance, uh, Henry working on Babel. A lot of his donations are donations to Henry to work on Babel. What if Henry wants to work on something else? Like what goes on in his head when that happens? But yeah, I, I, I really think that we need to start building things for diverse uh, kind of contributors to projects in particular. So, One of the things that I have as a goal for devchat.tv is to cover technologies that are up and coming, things that we're probably going to have to deal with on a more regular basis in the future. Some of these include AI, VR, and one of them is blockchain. So I reached out to one of the experts that I knew, Gregory McCubbin, and we pulled together a few other people and we've started a podcast called Adventures in Blockchain. So if you're looking at blockchain as something that you may want to work in, something that you're curious about learning more about, or something that you just want to keep current on until you have the opportunity to make a career jump and go over and work in blockchain and crypto, then definitely check out Adventures in Blockchain. You can find it at adventuresinblockchain.io. When it comes to the funding sources, one of the one of the concerns I have that seems to be commonly accepted in the community is that these donations, I believe, are primarily coming from other developers. To me, that seems like it's it's a solution targeting the long tail of funding, meaning developers are probably the last people that should be charged. Maybe not, but I believe that the developers can provide value back to the maintainers in ways other than monetary, where the scalable monetary side will never come from individuals, but will come from corporate usage. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it is definitely playing in the long tail. I think there's absolutely no argument against that at all. I also think there's an element of picking the winners already. So the thing that I see kind of happening and the question that I have is that are we creating a competitive market space for donations? Because the individuals who have a strong association with a successful project or a strong association and personal brand with an open source are going to be the people that get picked by individuals to get support rather than necessarily the people who are working on like less visible projects or the people who choose to be potentially less visible themselves within the community. And that kind of speaks to the method of uh, like distribution of funding within that ecosystem at the moment, right? So all the methods are, I will pick, I will pick based on my knowledge of my context right now. And for most people, the knowledge of their context is only one level deep. So surprise, surprise that the people who are working on projects that have that first kind of level of depth, the first level dependencies 
are going to be the most successful within that model. That's my view. Uh, the other view is, yes, companies are going to be the biggest kind of provider of potential like funding in that solution, but they don't want to have to pick individuals uh, or individual projects to support either. So we have to kind of make that almost zero touch for them. And to a certain degree, like Open Collective have been doing this with some of their um, initiatives around this, like Samsung Next Fund, where Samsung will give, I think it was like $400,000 to Open Collective to support open source software. Um, and then Open Collective distributed that to projects on their behalf. That was really cool. But yeah, I think kind of currently at the moment, the, the you pick the winner model is, is, is a big problem. So. Do you think that those maintainers that are receiving these fun- this funding should push some of that funding down to those dependencies that they're more aware of? Yeah, so the way I think about it and the way which I'm going to start kind of experimenting with Octobox is trying to support uh, our dependencies. The way way I see it is that those edge nodes in the, the open source graph, right? So those dependencies that are at the top level that are the most visible that are kind of easy to pick in the current kind of systematic systematic kind of climate that we have, maybe have a bit of a responsibility to be able to look after the projects that are underneath them that are propping them up as well. And then also projects like Octobox, where you have the opportunity to create a de facto kind of public instance of that thing and have members of the public using that instead of self-hosting, basically where you have the opportunity to create product kind of scale revenues, probably have a responsibility as well uh, to support the software that they build upon. Yeah, I just feel like that's <laughs> that's a, a part of the problem currently. But then I guess people are just kind of acting in an understandable way when you think that they've had very little opportunity to sustain their work and now they have some opportunity to sustain their work. They're kind of taking advantage of, of that for the time being. That's, that's what I think. I was just thinking while you were talking, it's, it's a much bigger issue than just for open source coding. Right. I mean, this is about structural issues. So another good example would be global warming. It's very easy to, you know, stop getting plastic bags and take them to the shopping market, but corporations are the ones who are going to need to stop actually using the plastic bags in the first place. And then voters need to decide how to actually put pressure on corporations by using their voice. In tech, or the majority of tech, we don't tend to have unions. We don't tend to have collective say with larger platforms. We only tend to have the ability to move more or less off a platform unless there's a major monopoly. So in the case of GitHub, right, um, GitLab exists, but not a lot of people move there. Sometimes you see mirrors and the like, but it's not like the large force of people are saying, hey, we want to go to a more open source model. I guess I don't really have a question there, but I'm curious if you see similarities as well. If it sounds like it's kind of a human bias to pick the most flamboyant flamingo in the crowd and praise it, as opposed to paying for everyone else in the in the crowd who might be keeping up the sky in Peru. That's a really awful metaphor, but I tried to make it work. (laughs) (laughs) We'll we'll, we'll keep trying. We'll keep trying together. (laughs) So, like, this is going to be massively bumbling, but, like, people are going to always act in self-interested kind of ways, and people always have, like, the same kind of psychology, right? People like supporting winners, ultimately. I think one of the things that I've been thinking about most recently is... We started talking, and when I wrote that report back in 2017 about diversity for an individual project, having a diverse set of contributors, having a diverse set of revenue sources, resources, however you want to kind of refer to like financial sustainability, 
And more recently, I've been thinking about, well, what if that diversity is within the community instead of like the community of open source software rather than for the individual project, right? So it becomes more of a community-wide solution rather than individual project-wide solution. Like the open source community should be able to sustain itself ultimately without having to have one single kind of marketplace operator or set of operators ultimately. And I'm kind of just thinking, well, what would that look like if everybody who had the opportunity to create some level of or some degree of financial sustainability for themselves, shared it with the rest of the community, then you would have a more resilient community for everyone, right? But that's like a very rambling adjunct to your That was actually question. very eloquent <laughs> and in no way rambling whatsoever. Um, <laughs> I mean, it reminds me of you said earlier where you said that there's, are we building a competitive marketplace? And that can be taken two ways, right? So it could be a competitive marketplace in a bad way where certain people are getting a much longer head start on less rent. Or it could be we're building a competitive marketplace in the sense that we have platforms which compete against each other, which is good because it gets more money into the system altogether. So GitHub sponsors is also part of the system as well as Open Collective, as well as Tidelift, as well as personal donations on Patreon, as well as having a PayPal link, as well as having a Bitcoin address. Right? All these things together work to basically allow multiple streams of income to come in. A good example of this is crypto, right? Without ICOs happening, we wouldn't have an explosion in decentralized technology happening in the past five years. Absolute explosion, which is fascinating because all of a sudden there's millions of dollars injected into the system, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. In fact, definitely hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars, which has been fascinating to watch. It doesn't always trickle down into open source. I know this is an open source podcast, and some of that stuff is you know closed source banking on, on Ethereum dApps, which isn't really what we want in the world, except Solidity is open source, and Bitcoin originally is open source. And so it's kind of a natural progression where enterprise gets its finger in the door, and then all of a sudden there's a lot of coins flooding through the cracks. When you said competitiveness, which one did you mean? Did you mean the one where we're kind of limiting the market or did you mean that we're opening it up? So when I'm talking about like a competitive market, I'm talking about a competitive market within each of the platforms rather than like between all of the platforms. So when I say we've created a competitive marketplace for donations, I mean that the way in which we are selecting kind of projects to support or individuals to support is in a very like manual kind of basis. And as a result, the people and the projects that are most visible are kind of just becoming more and more successful within that marketplace. There is like a whole other point about, well, what happens like across all of those marketplaces? And yeah, like we do get more money into the system because there are more solutions. And like one of the best things that GitHub did when they decided to enter is to support the gamut of what was currently available ultimately with the the funding uh, YAML file. And, uh, you know, like I, I expect to see more of that. There's also like an, an interesting thought experiment, which is like, what's going to happen with all those marketplaces? Um, and thinking of, thinking about it from a purely economic perspective, are we ultimately just going to end up with one ecosystem where the market provider and operator basically takes the minimum that is required to operate the market that the market itself is willing to put up with versus solving the problem as a community itself without having a market operator like is the business for operating a two-sided marketplace with open source producers and consumers actually profitable because the participants in one side of that marketplace were have are like are like motivated to 
basically create the best market efficiency for 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 itself without having to like pay a marketplace operator a ridiculous amount of money in the middle. I would say no, uh, and I would say no because profit is not the only thing that's it's not the only variable in the open source market. The majority of open source is not driven by profit, but driven by hobbyists. No, yeah, yeah, sure. Just, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And people always have different ways of doing things. I mean, if you look at Patchwork and Scuttlebutt, right, this is a decentralized social media platform with no real leader. It's all open source. You can go on there and post and talk to your friends like Twitter or use hashtags and like, they don't have an ICO. They don't have a massive amount of funding. They don't really have funding. They just have people who really like it a lot. And it's actually pretty much just as successful as far as I can tell as much larger projects in the decentralized space, which have gotten a lot more money, but may not have the hobbyist driving it. Do they occasionally probably get grants for individual work? Yeah. And there's things like contracting on top. But the fact that that community in particular, the reason I bring it up is because they're not motivated by profit. They're motivated by getting it right the first time. And I think a lot of developers are like that, which is something I really love. And so even back in the day, you would see people trying out all sorts of different things, not because they had to, just because they wanted to. Hey, pay me by Bitcoin. It's way less convenient than mailing me a check. But I want to buy a pizza with this thing, you know? Like, And that was that was how the market worked for a while. Granted, I don't know where the market is going, and I don't know where open source payments are going to end up. No, yeah, no, I can I completely take what you're saying about like the the incentives for contributing to open source software are more than just being paid to work on open source software. I think when I'm talking about operating marketplaces to pay people to contribute to open source software, I'm talking about those other less intrinsic motivations and just like the marketplace for funding that particular type of contribution. I'm not talking about funding open source in like totalitarian kind of regimes. I'm talking about just like that specific aspect of it. Like open source managed to get to where we are today without like significant portions of funding being run into every single project. Right. So yeah, you're completely right. And what I'm saying is just, I'm talking about the segment of the market that's just like the money bit. In an argument to that, Open source did get to that point. However, open source has never been a dependency in the past like it is today. It is a core part of almost every application out there. And for many, well over 50% of the code is open source. So I I know that you understand that because you you wrote the report. (laughs) But I do see the need for for changes coming. And I'm glad that, uh, Richard, you brought up the the crypto. I, I personally believe that the blockchain will have a huge impact in the future of this. But that, of course, is for another day. We are getting close on time. And so is there anything else that we haven't covered that you would like to talk about? Uh, no, it's been, a, it's been a good chat, been a good ramble. <laughs> the one thing I was going to say on the crypto space, which I find incredibly interesting, because crypto gets a fair amount of flack, uh, it has to be said. But the one thing I've always thought is the most interesting aspect of crypto is being able to make inflation-based investments in your own community in the knowledge that the added kind of uptick that you will have in the value of the work that's then funded by inflating that particular token will actually ease out over time. So inflation-based spending for me is the thing that's like really cool about open source software or generally any project that's supported by a token. I just, I, I love that idea. 
I'm with you there. One other question for you, or the last question for me, is um, you're one of the organizers of the Sustain Summit. We get asked a lot when the next one is. Can you give us any insight into what's going to be happening, what's coming up? So we're actively having this conversation at the moment about what a another Sustain event would look like. I would like to see a series of events that are kind of funded as a community that are backed um, by Sustain. But I imagine there will be like one kind of big event as well that comes up as, as part of that. So I want to kind of see the concept kind of federated to be able to support multiple events in multiple geographies with multiple kind of subjects that are covered in detail. But I think there will be like another singular event that we put on as well. I would love to see it as well in different continents. I know we've gone across the ocean. Oh, well, geez. Like, yeah, I've handled all of the kind of visa support and like travel for both of the existing events. And like, it breaks my heart a number of people that we have said, yeah, we'll support you to attend this conference. And then they get their visa rejected. You're just like, so watch this space. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Watch this space. We'll see where it is next time. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and over the last few years, I've gotten to know a lot of great people within the Microsoft community, and specifically in the .NET area. Uh, one of our guests from JavaScript Jabber, Sean Clabo, actually reached out to me and said he wanted to start a show on .NET, and there are a ton of people out there that I feel like sometimes get neglected in the .NET space. So if you're one of those folks, uh, you've been listening to maybe one or two of the other .NET-focused or Microsoft-focused podcasts for a while and thought, well, where's the devchat.tv style podcast for me in .NET? You can find it. It's at adventuresin.net.net is spelled out, D-O-T-N-E-T, adventuresin.net.com. Go check it out today. I think that wraps it up for the conversation today. I don't have any further questions, but we do have picks, which is the thing we do here on Sustain Our Software. So if you've heard the show before, listen in. If you haven't, we choose three things which we have liked over the past week or so, or 10 months, or in Ben's case, his entire lifetime, because he's never done this before. So anything, really. Eric, do you have uh, three picks lined up? I don't know if I have three picks. Two is um, also good. Whatever. You know. I'll, do, I'll do my best. So one of the things I I run into as a devapreneur, I guess you could say, <laughs> is the struggle it is to find focus, to find the ability to get things done when you have 20 things coming at you at the same time every hour. And I've been using, uh, we've been using a CRM uh, HubSpot. And one of the guys that is working with us is actually a burning man right now. And it makes it really hard because there's not a lot of accountability on the system that, and there's not a lot of visibility on the system. So I I come in and I, I have to cover him as well while he's gone. And I realized that so much is just out of my knowledge as far as what, where everything is, how everything is moving. So I don't know if that says anything about HubSpot or maybe about me and my personality. But for me and my personality, I like to keep things simple and in front of me. So this week we're trying out uh, PipeDrive. And PipeDrive is a, uh, it's a CRM tool that's much more uh, column-based. It has full email integration. It has your email tracking, link tracking. It also has a very visible pipeline that you could watch for everything. So I went in and I created four pipelines, one of them for our advertising sales, 
one of them for our existing ad campaigns that are running to make sure that those are running smoothly, one of them for our publisher onboarding and happiness, and the, and the last one is our billing pipeline. So by having that, I can literally switch tabs and view exactly where our whole company is at one time, which is just unheard of for me. And so I'm, I'm kind of giddy. I'm like a, a fat kid in a candy store right now, getting everything set up. So that's really neat. The other thing I'm going to pick selfishly, since I kind of mentioned it before, is, is CodeFund. Now, CodeFund is the company that I work with. And our goal, our whole goal is to help fund open source projects through ethical advertising. I know recently there was quite a, a scandalous piece of news that came out with ads showing up in the terminal on NPM install. We're actually going to have Ferros as a guest on the show to talk about that. But these are ethical ads in that they will only show if we don't do any tracking or marketing, anything like that. But the reason I bring it up is because we want to help fund more projects. So if you are an open source developer, if you have a website that you would like to help fund your fund yourself to be able to continue working on things, that's what we're looking for. So check us out at codefund.io. Thank you for letting me spiel my own thing. We'll let it pass. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Awesome. My picks are Scuttlebutt and Patchwork, which is an app on top of Scuttlebutt, which is super awesome. My uh, username on there is capital I, lowercase m, capital P, M, X, D, lowercase O, U, capital L. No, okay, stop. You can find me on there as Richard. This will be in the show notes, in the show notes as well. Check out Scuttlebutt. It's super awesome. Uh, I would love to have more people to talk to you on there. I would love to post more and have it be more of a social network unless of an email to like eight of my friends. Another pick I have is the poetry of Norman McCaig, M-A-C-C-A-I-G. He is a fantastic English language poet from Northern Scotland who I had the great privilege of reading uh, quite a lot of over the past day or so because I'm at my friend's house and has it lying around. Hard to find in America, easy to find in Britain. And I mean actual books and editions, you may have to import them, but beautiful, beautiful poetry. Absolutely excellent. Really makes me want to go back to northern, northern Scotland. And my final pick is a book I just finished this week, The Overstory by Richard Powers. It's a book about trees, but also about eight people who have interwoven lives around... Um, pretty much the redwoods in Northern California, but also elsewhere and their lives and how trees kind of defined them and also humans in general and how we, how we actually interface with the world. It's larger than life. It's a massive book. It didn't do very well. So it only won a Pulitzer, not the Nobel prize, but I highly suggest it. It's only 500 pages, quite a good book. Richard Powers, the overstory. Those are mine. Ben, what do you got? So I will plus one for Pipedrive. I used to use that when I worked at my society for organizing all of my like sales funnels. And it is great for getting like an overview of the whole company, as you say. It's also not the subject of like most of the Silicon Valley third series, which uh, I think HubSpot uh, kind of provided the inspiration for Dan Lyons. So that's, that's also a bonus. On the focus point, I was going to say uh, I recommended this this week uh, to a friend and he said he really liked it for getting focus work done, which is you are listening dot two, which is basically like a mashup of ambient uh, music with uh, police radio over the top, which sounds crazy, but give it a go. It's actually quite, uh, quite nice and relaxing to, to work to and kind of helps you keep your focus. And then I was going to recommend a book which I'm sure everyone has come across in its film form uh, called Under the Skin, which is by Michael Faber. So there's a URL for that one. 
So Under the Skin had Scarlett Johansson in it, but the book itself is very different from the film. Um, and it's really worth reading if you are a vegetarian or vegan, uh, or you are interested in converting someone to vegetarianism. And I will just leave it at that. All right. Thank you so much. Excellent. It was great having you on the show, Benjam slash Ben slash Benjamin. Thank you so much for this conversation. I actually learned a lot about really excited about some of the thoughts I have here. Thank you, Eric. And with that, adieu. Thank you both. Thank you. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.